Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are back for another deep dive discussion. Well, I guess it's also a top five list, but this is the kind of thing that, uh, I mean, look, it's been a long pandemic and people have spent the pandemic doing different. Some people have learned languages. Some people, you know, have done classes. I went and got all the trophies in the Hitman World of Assassination trilogy. You know, like productive stuff to, to better ourselves and better the world around us. Um, but uh, lots of people doing different things, and this one we wanted to draw some attention to. Graham, could you please introduce our guest? We have with us an audio engineer extraordinaire and a frequent guest, especially when it comes to the topic at hand. We have Mr. Dave Clark here to talk about Star Trek. Hello. Hello. Hey, Dave. Now, we talk about Star Trek on this show a lot. I mean, I would not say it is out of line to say that Graham and I, a lot of the time, like, we've sort of got it covered. Uh, but you did something we didn't hear. And I you know, I don't even want to introduce it. You want to tell us sort of how you've been spending your time? Well, during the, let's just say the second half of the pandemic, I have, I took it upon myself to watch all of Star Trek again but in this time i have decided to watch it in the in-universe chronological order so so by all of star trek you mean like the original series right i so all right i started with uh enterprise then i watched discovery season one and two and then the original series uh and then the original series movies then next gen and at the uh start of ds9 where ds9 and next gen overlapped the last two seasons of next gen i start i overlapped them there and then watched ds9 uh overlapping with voyager as it did and interjected the uh, next gen movies at the appropriate point in that run and then uh picked up with lower decks and then Picard, and then Discovery Season 3. Wow. And so you are you are a single man and unemployed, right? In no, order to accomplish no. this. <laughs> no, uh, but, you know, there's there, there are times when it's available. And, you know, I have watched all of those things already a few times. Some of them, some of them only once. Discovery and... and and Lower Decks, I'd only seen the one time before this, but you'll notice... Okay, so there is a hole in this. I I, I, I did skip the animated series. Uh, the, the the original... I was uh, going to bring it up. ...series, animated <laughs> series. I, I decided against it. And the Kelvin And I know verse. that's a hole. And I did leave out the Kelvinverse, which is now intertwined in our universe, uh, thanks to Discovery Season 3. And David Cronenberg. And David Cronenberg uh, to lay it all out for us, but uh, I did I did leave that out of this particular rewatch because the problem with that is is that it's it's impossible to do chronologically, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, hmm, I for the most part, yeah. 
Right. Well, I mean, it doesn't. It you could do it chronologically, but it'd it be doesn't... before the first original series episode. Yeah, it'd be the it's, first it's... one. And, and you have a cause after... and effect issue, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe I would do it after Voyager ended because it takes place sometime between, like, like the inciting incident with the Spock and the Red Matter and all that happens sometime after Nemesis and, and Voyager. Yes. Um, I mean, if you wanted to be real super accurate about everything, I also did not watch the short treks in this okay. particular run either. Well, dear, this is all a sham. I'm going to end this podcast now. <laughs> all right, take care. <laughs> <laughs> so how come you didn't do the, the original animated series? Just like too brutal to it's, sit through? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, Brutal's the wrong word. It's it's rough and it's silly, and I know we're referring to them now. I know that they've become a part of the canon in that Parts they're being used. Them. Isn't yeah, there like in, an episode with a giant Spock? Like I don't think that's canon. Well, that's I think that's the thing, right? It's, it's a bit of a pick and choose situation. Yeah, and and similar to the upcoming Prodigy, I think it's it's very much it's it's for kids, like aggressively for kids as opposed to i think everything else that star trek has done is has always been aimed at sort of a general audience skewing adult but a general audience so i feel like you know the 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 fact that it's so aggressively for kids is yeah i just i didn't need to i didn't want to i didn't i didn't you know it's a, a lot of people leave it out of canon and so or treat it as beta canon uh, kind of thing similar to the novels. I mean, I don't think. I, all jokes aside, I don't think anyone is uh, you know is blaming you for it. I mean, you you sent us the numbers, and at the end of the day, that's still you watched almost like you you put it out to twenty three straight days of Star Trek arranged yeah. chronologically. I think you got the meat in that pie. Yeah, yeah, I think we're I think we're covered. Yeah. And uh and I enjoyed it. It was it was, you know, there's there's definitely some low points um you know, in in a couple of the seasons of Enterprise, there's a, there's the early seasons, the low points in the early seasons of Next Gen, the low points in the early seasons of DS9. There's there's lots of low points, but I thoroughly enjoyed the overall experience for sure. Were there some seasons where you felt you were going faster? Like it was, did you, do you think you went faster through the bad stuff or the good stuff? Did I go faster? No. Yeah. I think I went faster through the good stuff. Okay. Um, you know, that the third and fourth seasons of next gen, the, the dominion war, you want to get to what's coming, right? You want, you know, what's coming is Great. That's the part of the thing about a rewatch of something like this is that I know what's coming and I know it's great and I and I kind of want to get there. But like there weren't so so there were times where you're like, all right, gotta sit through Shades of Grey. Yeah, well, Shades of Grey is a special. Like (laughs) you're you're the you're at the end of a season. They get a writer's strike going. You got to do a re. Save money. Eclipse episodes, you're saving money, and it's just it's the poor Marina just having to <laughs> act against nothing. You know, it's just it's, right. it's, it's yeah. 
and the clips they chose, like the things they they had to at that point to refer to, often came from terrible episodes. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was too early <laughs> in the show for a a good clip show. Yeah, yeah. If there is such a thing, I mean, yeah, I. I, well, all right. So let's break uh, break the Star Trek for a second. There, uh, Scrubs does a clip show in the sixth season. I want to say maybe seventh or maybe eighth, but it's near the end, and they finally get to a clip show. Like they hadn't done one before then, and that kind of works. But Fresh Prince does two clip shows in the first season, like two. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Clerks so, hilariously did a clip show in the second episode. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Was, but a that was a joke. <laughs> this, that was, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know we're going to be talking about things you noticed this time, seeing it all together. But I wonder if there were new favorites that you came across, like episodes that seeing it this way made the episode better. Made it better. Well, let's see. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's sort of there's definitely a continuation that happens when you watch it this way. I think. What the, okay, so here's one. Um, you watch. I watched the cage before watching Discovery, and mm. and I think that was interesting to me because it puts. I mean, obviously, Dis, uh, Discovery didn't continue the 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 sort of onboard a submarine military uh, work very sort of straight and narrow aspects that. Um, that Roddenberry had laid down for that that uh, pilot in the cage, um, but it did continue the sort of sense of a crew and how they relate to each other and and all those sorts of things, and that carries through. And then you get Cage, you get it referred to again in um, when we get to season two of Discovery. I think I think that helped even more like I had seen it and I knew the cage, but like referring to it after I'd seen it um, in a continuation like that really sort of elevated the return to the return to it in discovery. And then again, the return to it in uh, the menagerie when it comes back in, in TOS having, having had Pike's life shown to us for a period so in that sense, it, it, it elevated both of those episodes. And even, I'll take it one step further, made me even more interested in where Brave New World is going to be. Brave New Worlds mm-hmm. is going to be when it finally is comes Is it out Brave New Worlds or Strange New Worlds? Uh, embarrassed. Is it Strange <laughs> New Worlds? Yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you. Okay. I wasn't sure either. <laughs> there, there is also a Brave New World show, but that's uh, unrelated to Star Trek. Uh, Fair enough. So, and just for our, our less Trek enthusiastic uh, fans who are listening, uh, the cage was the original pilot that Gene Roddenberry made, and he had the very rare opportunity to make a second pilot after they rejected the first one. That does not happen a lot in television, and because Star Trek is what it is, that episode became kind of legendary and uh, shrouded in mystery a little bit and was finally made available to the public in the 80s, I think. And now it's just available streaming everywhere like any other episode. Yeah, most of the episode appears in flashback in a, a later uh, TOS episode uh, where Spock is basically telling Kirk and uh, uh, Court Martial uh, the story that happened in this pilot. Um, 
but uh, yeah, convenient. You know, all that footage lets lying around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, they stretch it out to two. It's a two-parter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The yeah. first two-parter in Star Trek, and the only mm-hmm. one in the original series. Yeah. So I think that's 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 one example for sure of it, sort of putting putting Discovery, especially Discovery season two, in there. I think elevates the cage, and I think it elevates the the menagerie later. So I guess we should. Uh, so we we do actually have a list today. I mean, I mentioned earlier. We do. I do. It is sort of a deep dive, but also a list. Um, and it, I guess let's let's jump into it because I know that we're going to spend a lot of time analyzing the nitty gritty details. So. For you at home, if there's a chance that you're listening to this show and you're actually not a big Star Trek person, <laughs> now is the time to become a Star Trek person. Like this, this may be these sorts of deep dives may be the thing that hooks you. I, that's you know what? That's much more optimistic. Let's go with that. Yes. <laughs> what we're saying is, is this is going to be in depth and geeky. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Like the whole show, guys. Come on. This is this is your milieu. Play into it. That's true. If you stuck with us this long, this is not going to come as a surprise. Yeah. So, so what's this list we're looking at? Okay. So I, I've titled this list the top five aha moments of watching the whole Star Trek run. And number five is the amount of times that false flag attacks are used. Okay, so first off, explain what a false flag attack is in in general. I think that's important. A false flag attack is when someone uh, makes a military aggressive action pretending to be someone else. The goal being either to blame the third party for the attack or in a couple of these cases, simply scare the person they're attacking, but they don't want you to know who is doing the attacking. So, is that clear? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. So in Star Trek, this happens a number of times. Yeah, which which really surprised me when you brought it up, because it's not what you think of when you think of, you know, the great utopian, peaceful United Federation of Planets and their, you know, post-human, like... Everything's perfect society. Yeah. Well, here's something to, to, to really consider. that I think that four of the five of these examples happen after Roddenberry is dead. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with that because Roddenberry was, okay, humanity has evolved to the point where we are uh, past our conflicts and dealing with external conflicts. We, we've, we've evolved beyond uh, our internal squabbling. Uh, obviously, that's actually something that is very challenging to write drama around. I mean, you do have the opportunities to use external uh, conflict when you have alien races and, and, and all those sorts of things. But the interpersonal conflict is 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 completely off the books for for Roddenberry. It's all all the conflict has to be external. Okay, great. So here are five of the examples that I pulled real quick. Um, Star Trek Six, uh, the undiscovered country, uh, the DS Nine two parter, Homefront and Paradise Lost, DS Nine, the Pale Moonlight. Uh, Next Generation uh, episode Ensign Row and uh, the 
in sort of inciting incident or one of the two inciting incidents of uh, the Picard series, the synth attack on Mars. And I think there are probably more kicking around that I just have, you know, overlooked, but I, this is, this is, these are the big ones. These are sort of like, these are sort of the real big plot point ones. In each case, there's an attack and it's, oh no, the bad guys are attacking, but it turned out to be someone else. Yeah. And I'm trying to refresh my memory, but I think in, in each case, except for Pale Moonlight, I guess, but in, other, in each case, it is that the audience is unaware and that's the big reveal, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, with the exception of Pale Moonlight, the audience is unaware and that's the big reveal. And in the case of Star Trek VI, there are two versions of it. Both cases are false flag attacks, but it the 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 home release, which I think has a different title. Is it called the director's cut? Eventually, I think in the uh, on my Apple uh, download of it, the in the iTunes extras, there's the director's cut, and that has the false flag stuff or the you know increased false flag. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the, the the hat on the hat in that case. Yeah. Where it turns out that uh Colonel West is in fact masquerading as a Klingon who is attacking the Klingons at the peace treaty. And the other half of the false flag is that the the cloaked ship that fires on the Chancellor's ship. Yeah. Uh, to make so, it look like the Enterprise fired on them. Exactly. Right. I just want to talk about that a little bit because we're the, these the different versions of the movie because that sort of stuff fascinates me. And when we were growing up, like I, I was much too young and my parents had no interest in taking me to see Star Trek Undiscovered Country in, in theaters. And so I only ever saw it on home video. So that version of it with the with Colonel West in it at all, Rene Aubergenois as, as this isn't in the theatrical cut of the movie. And he shows up as Colonel West in this director's cut and then is revealed to be a Klingon or he he's the Klingon assassin at the end. But in the normal cut of the movie or the original cut of the movie, that was just a Klingon assassin. And then the director's yeah. cut, it's revealed to be Rene Aubergenois in, in Klingon makeup. Uh, yeah. That's wild to me. Like, like it's such a, it seems small, but it changes that the whole dynamic of that, that last scene and yeah. uh, and it's and just it's a like really dramatic was, moment. Like it's a good movie moment, you know. Yeah, and I that mean was it's a the, bit Scooby Doo, but <laughs> but it changes. No, when he's like he, he shoots him out of the window, and like this, like, yeah, and he falls out in slow motion. There's the big crash, like that's Yeah, well, that still happens, right? Yeah, it does. Oh, but we yeah, don't. Oh, but we don't find out that it's like we think it's just a mask. Gun. Yeah, the mask yeah. comes off on the ground. Yeah. Uh, okay. After that, yeah, and 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 when you guys were talking about quote fixing this movie unquote, I think uh, you went into a, a bit of detail on this, and I agree completely. It's 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 one of those deleted scenes that that really does change it. Now that being said, it's exactly the same plot as um, as Homefront, right? With where you've got the Federation Admiral uh, plans an attack on Earth in order to keep from, I mean, in this case, in order to gain power, military power to fight a war, but it's 
it's the same idea. It's to destroy the peace, you know, to, to convince Earth that the, there is no peace and that you need to be militaristic. Right. Yeah. And it's definitely a trend in, and we'll circle back to this later, I think, with the trend of having the bad moral. Like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's the, absolutely in the Star Trek universe, the captains of the ships are the good guys. And as soon as they get promoted to, like, you know, the politicians, the admirals who sit behind desks and instead of being in the field, those guys are all. I mean, best case scenario, they're idiots, right? Then they're obstructing the captain's progress because they're they're bureaucrats. Blah. But most of the time, they're actually secretly evil. Yeah, or racist or just set in their ways. Like, it doesn't seem to be a problem of, like, big picture, small picture thinking. It seems to be that these admirals are... Uh, living with a lot more fear because they're not out in the field and or just more aggressive because because of whatever reason but it's 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 more um i mean they're you know from a from an outside view and from an not inside the world view it's it's to create a a conflict for the for the our main characters to overcome but inside the world it does seem like like how did this happen were you a good captain or were you promoted out of the captain's chair to get you to keep you from causing trouble like what's what happened here <laughs> i feel like there we get hung up on the the bad morals but there are some good morals too and, sure sure like um, uh, admiral hansen is a yeah. good one uh you know it's 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 the the disagreement there is, is that whether he he does not agree with Riker's opinion to uh, to chase after Picard to try and save him from being from the Borg, but I mean I'll buy that one. It's not mm-hmm. like he like actively wanted to. He wasn't trying to sabotage anything. I mean his yeah, his argument yeah, is exactly. entirely reasonable, and you you disagree with him yeah. because you agree with Riker, but you still can respect where he's coming from, and and yeah. you know he pays for not trusting Riker. But maybe Riker and the Enterprise would have been destroyed if if they hadn't listened, along with everyone else at Wolf Three Five Nine. Exactly. And then you got Admiral Ross from from. Uh, DS9 and uh, he's good for the most part. He there's yeah. there's the there's the one which we'll actually hit on a little bit later on my list. But there's the one section thirty one episode where it turns out he's not the the perfect admiral. And then right. there's also uh, you, you let him off the hook on the other one too, where he um, takes the Romulan side against the Bajorans to try and hold keep the Romulans uh, but, but he redeems the like, yeah he does he does you get you let him off the hook at the end he he he, he, he changes his mind to back yeah. down that's a good yeah he's he's definitely a, a hero admiral for sure and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there had been so many bad morals before we get too far into that because that's basically we're getting into your your number four already I just want to talk a little bit more about one thing that you listed in the false flag which is in the pale moonlight and that's yeah. a, a, the a great flipping the situation on its head because usually yeah. in these false flag episodes our heroes are uncovering the plot and they're like oh tisk tisk uh, Starfleet or whoever how could you sink so low we're better than this. But in, in the pale moonlight, it's our hero. It's Captain Sisko and Garrick 
who are doing the false flagging. And I think when I watched it as a kid, I just sort of took it at face value. Like, well, this is Captain Cisco. This is our hero. Of course, he's doing the right thing. But watching it as an adult with a bit more, you know, life behind me and uh, and experience and, and just looking at the morally gray at best situation that 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 episode presents, you're like, wow, that is a this is a, episode has a lot to say. It's yeah. absolutely bonkers about what you have to do. It's an episode about what you what what is right and wrong in wartime. And it's totally dark. If you want a quick synopsis, it turns out uh for first of all, this is one of those episodes that DS9 did, uh, one of the few episodes of Star Trek where they 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 flipped the script uh, in terms of how they were presenting the episode. The whole episode is presented um, as Cisco is narrating his log well after the fact, and it's presented flashing back to the scenes that they're talking about. Um, Cisco is telling the story to his log about. Uh, how he engaged Garrick and their intention was to show Romulans proof that the Dominion was plotting to break their non-aggression pact with Romulus and going to attack them sooner rather than later in order to draw Romulus into the war. And the Romulan Empire at this point is not in the war. They need them to win. That's the, that's the, Conclusion that Cisco and his great strategic mind has come to. And so he engages with Garrick, who at this point it has been undoubtedly revealed to be a spy, um, to, to figure out how to do this. And they decide to make a fake recording that they're going to present to the Romulan ambassador. They present the, they make the recording. Uh, they present the recording to the Romulan ambassador. The Romulan ambassador decides it is a fake, concludes it is a fake, then leaves to go back. When the, he leaves to go back, the ship is destroyed. And as it turns out, Garrick has destroyed the ship and with the plan being that that will destroy the evidence that the, uh, that the faked uh, isolinear rod was faked it will just the imperfections will appear to be the damage from being the ship being destroyed and voila romulus enters the war job done and at the end of the episode cisco tells us that he would do it all again even though he covered up did he cover up the murder of the guy who did the um yeah the the guy who the, made the the fake hollow the hollow program yeah so he covers up the murder he covers up the murder of the Romulan ambassador and uh, can totally live with his conscience and then deletes the log entry. I mean, he tricked an interstellar nation into a galactic war that's going to cost millions and millions of lives. You know, that, uh, yeah, their lives. Yes, and absolutely. It's, it's, he's not wrong. It's, it's, it, it, he's morally and ethically wrong, but he's strategically perfectly right. And the thing is, it feels like in a lot of shows and, and even probably most Star Trek shows, there would be a comeuppance later on, like like the Romans would find out and there'd be conflict with Cisco and everything. Cisco would have to deal with the ramifications of this. But in in the timeline that we have in the rest of the series, Cisco never pays a price for this. No one ever finds out there's no ramifications. And that's away with the message, too. Yeah. 
and it's if, yeah. for a show especially like a syndicated mid-90s show to have him just get away with with something like that with uh, murders you know arguably justifiable murders but murders nonetheless it's it's wild and and it's, now we've spent a, a lot of time on this sure. and i feel like it's kind of the outlier to the original point of the list most of the time, like, I just want to circle back to what we're talking about. <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, the, most of the time, the false flags, the plot is something bad happens. They investigate. It turns out it was a secret plot. They solve the yeah. plot and it's gone. And so it's yeah. like, I, and I don't feel like it happens so often that it's a trope. But it is. I mean, I feel like Pale Moonlight is the exception. But most of the time, it's just it's sort of like this idea getting reused. But yeah. I would say that those episodes are different enough that they don't sort of step on each other's toes, right? No, I, that's the thing. Is it only it only revealed itself to me on this rewatch where I put everybody in order and and sort of shotgunned it all. Yeah, let's hop to number four. Sure, great. So, number four on my list, Admiral Necheyev is always wrong. <laughs> so, Admiral Necheyev, uh, most of Admiral Necheyev's appearances are in Next Gen, but with uh, one real appearance in DS9 and a second appear- a fake appearance in DS9. Um, she is the Admiral uh, who relieves Picard and sends him on the mission uh, in chain of command, relieves him, puts Jellico in his place, sends Picard on the mission. Okay, so secret op mission with Picard, Crusher, and Worf. I understand why you pull Worf for a secret ops mission. And I understand yeah. why the show is telling us you're going to pull Picard and Crusher for a secret ops mission. But when you actually think about it, yeah, I three, feel like three bridge be... officers from a ship. I mean, yeah, yeah. Worf is supposed to be super kill guy, but his job is still, you know, space mall cop. Like, yeah, we need like why? First of all, does okay. So here's the here's the <laughs> part of this aha uh-huh question: Does or does not? Starfleet have a military intelligence division other than Section 31? I think it's supposed to. Yes. In DS9, they have intelligence. But in DS9, they're actively at war. So I feel like it's one of those questions where you're like, okay, but who should this really be? Yeah. You know, doesn't it make more sense to train some Commandos. operatives with the the beta wave specialty that that they they pull uh, Crusher and Picard for, rather than or you know bring Picard along if he's the expert, but have him escorted by you know the Howling Commandos more than two, and yes, exactly. Yeah. So is your assertion that this whole thing was a cluster F by Necheyev, who just doesn't know how covert ops works? Well, that is that is part of it, because it's, we find out in Chain of Command that it was the whole, the whole thing was a, the fault of bad intelligence. The Cardassian leaked, the Cardassians leaked intelligence that they were working on this weapon in order to lure Picard in. 
that was their goal. They wanted Picard. So the Cardassians succeeded in their intelligence operations and uh, Starfleet failed. They get out of it because Jellico is successful in mining Cardassian ships in Cardassian space. So anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, we probably won't. But my point is, is that it's, it, you know, they're very lucky to rescue Picard from that situation. And he didn't even have the intelligence they wanted. So Nesheyev was wrong. She picked the wrong crew. She sent them on a wild goose chase. Uh, that was a trap. Reacting to bad intelligence. That was a trap. Yeah. We just in her defense a little bit. Uh, not yeah. necessarily in that episode, just in general. There's there's a tendency to have these admirals come in for not even whole episodes. They come in for like one scene and have a few lines of dialogue, and they're usually wrong, and they're they're kind of glorified extras a lot of the time. Nechev is one of the few who actually has a personality. She has a presence. I, as much as she's always, you know, the bad guy or like the bad boss when it comes to this stuff, it's a good performance, and I like that they kept bringing her back. I wish they yeah, liked her more. Yeah, I don't think we're saying that she's bad, like a bad addition to the show. Um, I, I think I, yeah. I think what we're saying is just that she's a trope. It's, it's <laughs> just that every time you see Nechev, you know that everything's about to go tease up. <laughs> yeah, and I think with the, the thing about it is is that it doesn't, it didn't have to, you know, sh- she could have showed up and said, okay, so here's what we think is going to happen. We've got, they're trying to lure. Why are the Cardassians trying to lure Picard, right? That should be the intelligence oper- operation. Why, is, why are the Cardassians trying to develop this technology that doesn't make any sense, right? All of a sudden, out of nowhere. Yeah, okay. So what about the next time? Okay, so the next time she shows up is Descent. And she shows up. Because, okay, the Borg are back, right? And in Descent, Descent is the episode, it's a two-part episode where Lore has taken over the Borg that have been affected by Hugh's individuality. Hugh being the Borg from iBorg, who uh, developed individuality and started to recover from being in the collective uh, before being returned without a geometric virus <laughs> and yeah we, we don't uh, have to, yeah we we, we don't have the, time to go into all that i think <laughs> the point i'm making is that she shows up and she absolutely dresses down picard for not using the virus and attempting genocide yes. against the Borg. she tells him that he was wrong that uh you know there is no individual in the Borg and therefore because they are all military targets and you are at war that justifies total uh, genocide genocide yeah yeah that which is wild like for next generation like absolutely you should have wiped out this entire species like I felt like that almost it it, like it almost did kind of break the immersion of the show Mm-hmm. But also, it's just, I mean, they're portraying Necheyev is not a good person. <laughs> She's not a Roddenberry-style utopian human. 
it uh, like like next generation is the is the nice one, right? There's no war in next generation. Everybody's good in next generation, and that having her be the the turn on that is very dramatic. Yeah, we're you know when we're in Iborg, when we're watching Iborg, you know we're following Jordy's relationship as it grows with Hugh, and and realizing that. As soon as you remove, as soon as you block the collective's communication, the individual remains, and he's an individual, and and he can be reasoned with, and he can uh, be recovered, and it's sort of setting up where we'll get to eventually with Seven of Nine, and and it's only when Gaiden tells Picard that he has to talk to Hugh that Picard realizes that. That I mean, this the, is a genocide and not a, just attacking military targets. And that's the lesson we learned from the episode. And we sort of presume that now that we've learned that lesson, that's been passed on, like that's been, or passed up in this case. Yeah. And it clearly has not been received well. No, it has not. No, it has not. So moving on with, with uh, uh, Admiral Nucheyev's failures, um, Journey's End which is our, our farewell to, to Crusher, uh, Wesley episode. This is the one where, is, again, this has to do... A lot of Admiral Nacheo's episodes have to do with Cardassians, the descent being the outlier. Um, Admiral Nacheyev orders the Enterprise to remove a colony of uh, Native Americans from a planet that it's not, has been ceded to Cardassians. And I mean, the orders to, to do that, I don't think are actually the problem. The thing that's the problem is, is that it's very clear that it's made clear in the episode that Admiral Necheyev was part of the negotiation team with the Cardassians that actually designed the demilitarized zone and gave up a bunch of these planets to the Cardassians that are clearly inhabited by Federation colonies. And so, I mean, this is this is going to be the same as as my next uh, my next point, and then again in in the mob key, this this comes up one more time. It's the same. It's the same role for her. She just has to show up and say. This this decision I made six years ago has screwed all of your lives, and uh, and now you have to you captain or you commander Cisco now have to uh, take all of these people away from their homes and force relocate them. And it happens three times. She has to do this three times. She has to back this bad treaty that she signed. Brutal. So she's Poor not. Girl. Uh, yeah. She, at no point is she learning that. Oh, what I've done here is actually, you know, like damaging a lot of lives and causing a lot of hurt and maybe I Well, to- I mean, she's not our main character. So I and she we don't we don't know. We don't know whether she's internally torn about this whereas our internal our our main characters we we do see, you know. We we see when in Journey's End Picard goes down and starts negotiations in good faith and and he understands that, okay, well, this planet has been ceded to the, you know, the, the decision has been made. We're going to have to come up with a solution. But the fact is that they let us know very clearly that the, it was partially her decision, this decision that has caused all this problem. Fair. Yeah. 
and she definitely presents herself as the all the decisions I've ever made in my life are correct, including this one I'm presenting you with now. But I guess we never see her hanging out with other admirals in the lunchroom. Being negotiations. Like, oh, yeah. I really botched this one. Yeah. I, I gotta, I'm going to have to sell this to Picard and make it seem like it was a great idea on my part, but really is the president of the Federation who forced this. No, but on you me. never get ah, that. Well. Like, she never takes him aside and goes, look, I know this is crappy. Like I, I'm a, I'll do what I get. She looks at it and it's like, this is the order. Get it done. Nechev has spoken. Like at no yeah. point is there anything conciliatory. <laughs> Nechev sucks. Yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> end of it. Yeah, which is and and you know even in the in the, so she shows up one more time in DS Nine after the Maquis, where it is the second half of the search, um, and in this case, uh, our heroes are actually inside a uh, brain linked. Uh, simulation. They've returned to DS9 after being, quote, captured by the Jem'Hadar and the Dominion. The Dominion are actually holding them in a brain link simulation, and they are playing out possible outcomes for how negotiations with the Alpha Quadrant species would go. And in this case, uh, Necheyev, the Dominion even has Necheyev playing the same heavy sort of role in she is... In, she is leading the negotiations. She's cut the Romulans out of the negotiations, thus leading to these conflicts to the point where the our heroes, again, have to mutiny or feel like they have to mutiny. It's not even, it's not even really happening. It's just that the Dominion intelligence is so good that they placed her in this position. <laughs> Or they just go into their head and it's like, who? Yeah, yeah. It, what's a figure in their memories here who causes a lot of strife? And, you know. And, and is this going to be the person that we want to. Uh, how do we want to negotiate with the Federation anyway? Yeah. Well, apparently, if you're a hostile power, it's negotiating with Nechev is a big. Uh, you'll, you'll get what you want. Yeah, that, that works out. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there you go. Nechev is always wrong. Fair. Okay. So, number three, Section 31. What to say about Section 31? So, my, my thesis for this number three aha moment is that Section 31 actually appears and tells people about itself in times of war in order to presumably uh, recruit, but also to, to... I think what they're doing... Let me let me start this sentence over. I think what they're doing, section thirty-one, is is when they reveal themselves, they're trying to secure support for the positions and actions that they are taking, even though they are secret actions, and uh, do in doing so that they they increase the effectiveness of the military actions and the intelligence actions that they're taking. Mm. And so Section 31 is the, I want to say, Black Ops, but it's not even just Black Ops. It's, it's, it's shadow, deep cover, total deniability section. I mean, in DS9, it's like, it's not even part of the Federation yeah, it's necessarily. Not, it's not on the books in DS9. It's sort of, it's described as always existing as a parallel organization Funded off books and and sort of running back to the beginning of the the Federation's charter. 
Well, except, I mean, it's sort of, it's top secret in Enterprise 2, but in Disco, we see that people are, yeah. like in Disco, they seem more legit. Yeah. Well, here's- They got their own special badges. Yeah. So cool, that badge. <laughs> I will, but here's the thing, right? So when, when in, in DS9, Section 31 is personified by, by Sloan, and um, when he first appears, that's how it's presented. Uh, it's a, it's an organization that is so deep cover that they don't even report to the Federation Council. There's no civilian oversight. But in the second instance, with the Latin title there, Inter Arma Enum Silent Legis, where um, Bashir and Admiral Ross are going to Romulus, Admiral Ross is in on it. He is working with them. So I believe that that this is this is exactly sort of my point. He is he is ac- actively working and clearly has uh, permission to do so. That this is an intelligence operation that we are doing as Starfleet. And then. Uh, so that's what I'm saying. So there's a, so there's a growth. There's already a growth. We have a we have there's a war starts and then finally section 31 shows up and then now the admiral is working for section 31 growth. Same so in Enterprise section 31 doesn't appear till after the Zindi attack. Right? Same idea. They're very shadowy, very deep covert, all those sorts of things, but slowly growing as as the conflict grows and you know you're you've recruited what's his nuts um it's enterprise nobody doesn't matter (laughs) the british one yeah uh malcolm yeah thank you um malcolm and uh, or as it turns out malcolm was perhaps previously recruited uh which i like i like that they 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 had him in uh, earlier and and the thing about the thing about the way that section 31 works in enterprise is it's very much like a, a cia situation where you've got a, a handler and you've got a pre-existing relationship and in the end malcolm wants to do like the the things are all you know moving the dial in the right direction but i think you know so what we're jesse was talking about so you've got section 31 in disco and so let's assume for the moment that they don't, you know, we aren't seeing them until it's, it's, it's the war has started, the Klingon war happens, then we've seen the badges, right? We see the badges on, on Lorca's discovery, but section 31 doesn't actually display itself to us until uh, season two, when we get this, this AI business. So, so yeah, I think that it, it has everything to do with the fact in the Klingon War. We've left. We leave for most of the Klingon War. We, the audience, leave to go to the mirror universe for most of the Klingon War. Mm-hmm. And we, when we get back, Section 31 is sort of a major and uh, uh, semi-public uh, oh, so, operation. So you're that, saying that, like... So while we were away, they came in and sort of legitimized themselves. 
Yeah, well, I think so. My 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 thesis is that they were they're all already legitimate in terms of the what the federation deems acceptable uh, in in times of war. But they you know they got funding. They were they were effective. All those sorts of things happened during the war, and they sort of kept going after the fact. And then we, so in, in Discovery, when we sort of see Starfleet security, the center of Starfleet security is this sort of mind, which is a illegal and secret base that, um, the, that is taken over by control in, in Daedalus, they, they have to get to that base, uh, and the mines are attacking them. So first of all, the mines are illegal. So that's a very section 31 thing to do. Second, uh, the base is sort of super secret. It's only the Admiral knows where it is um, and all those sorts of things. That's very Section 31. But at the same time, the Admiral knows where it is. They're happy to work with Section 31. They've got a fleet of ships. And the, the last episode is all the Section 31 ships. That's the fleet that comes to attack yeah, yeah. Disco in the end. And it's the a episode. lot. It's like it's there. It's all heavily armed. Yeah, and that's right after a war. So, I mean, they kept building Section 31 ships out of the war. That, that was their move. They were like, okay, we never want this to happen again. We're just going to build Section 31 to be, you know, we're going to build our military intelligence. This will be our military intelligence until, of course, that all falls apart because there's, there's not enough oversight. Um, and then it retracts. Over the next hundred years, that's kind of a cycle, huh? Yeah, that's that's that is my thesis of my aha number three moment. Your head cannon? Yeah, well, yeah, my head cannon, exactly. I, and I think, I think it has to be right. Like it's, you know, it doesn't make much more sense to not have military intelligence to have a different a different military intelligence than this when we get to the later seasons, the later shows, but. They were probably the only military intelligence department in the earlier era of Starfleet. Mm. I, I, this is one of the things that I don't like about later Trek. Like, it, it, it well, it's, it's sort of like how the, uh, I love First Contact and it introduced the Borg Queen, and the Borg Queen was one of the things that ended up ruining the Borg. And, so I, I have some struggles with that and I love deep space nine and I love the section 31 episodes of deep space nine, but I hate what they've done with section 31 in, in the rest of the shows. Yeah. I think the enterprise section 31 was true to the intention. Um, okay. But I think that the disco section 31 was not. Hmm. It's the sort of thing where I think section 31 in general undermines the, more optimistic vision that star Trek is meant to have. And yeah. I, and deep space nine, I feel like it earns it. Like things are getting a little darker and we see the, an underbelly, but then all of our hero characters and all, everything is, is against that. That's like, this is wrong and shouldn't be here. And we don't like this. Yeah. And everyone else is like, or I guess the message that the, the showrunners got where, Oh, these guys are cool. We have to keep bringing them back. And it's like, no, they're not cool. They're, they're, they're <laughs> it's for special occasions this. only. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's written on the box. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's and and you know what? It was it's it's interesting. Like you don't have to use section thirty one in Discovery season two. You could make that just uh, just this guy terrorists. Well, no, because he's not a terrorist. He he's he could just be military intelligence. He could just be another uh, you know a commodore or a captain with a fleet. You know. Right, it doesn't have to be Section Thirty One. It could be. It the only reason they use Section Thirty One is they want to sort of separate the computer network so that when control gets into it, it's separate from where we are on Discovery. Right? You know, Enterprise and Discovery are Starfleet, and Section Thirty One has this computer network that makes them check in all the time. That Leland then gets to take over. When he gets taken over by control, Ugh, you're making my head hurt. I know, but yeah. but that's the Lots only of, like it doesn't have to be section thirty one. It does, yeah, it just it just had to be Leland and his his ships, right? Like that's all it had to be. Yeah, it could have been more of a, a control thing, and like the yeah, and the AI, which we'll get into later. Yeah, yeah. All, all right, right well, let's move on to your number two. Number two, Klingon lifespans. Okay, what's up with Klingon lifespans, guys? <laughs> Pretty long, right? I know, right? Okay, so here's the first instance. We get Kang, Kor, and Koloth in the original series. On camera, we see them with the old makeup, and then we see them again alive in DS9 as old men, but uh, alive as the same characters. So... So we have to. So there's about an eighty year difference there, and yeah, well, ninety ish. And we have to when assume, to like, when we see them in the the original series, how young can we assume they are? Like, what's the most? Well, they're captains. They're running those ships, right? But it's the Klingon Empire. All you need to be a captain is like to be particularly good with a knife, right? Well, yes and no, right? We we talk. Worf talks about like the rules about when you're allowed to attack your commanding officer right yeah there are rules to this so okay so here's the postulation i have my my thought here is is that there are very few very old klingons because they're expected to die in battle right so you do get promoted fast and you do sort of get to become a captain at a young age but you're expected to then Go out in a blaze of glory. It's a good day to die, right? Okay. So, so this is this is the other thing I I, I want to uh, focus in on is that you have um, a number of instances where we get the same Klingon name reused in a family line. So. I'm going to again postulate a headcanon here, but in Enterprise we see we we meet Duras, and in Next Gen Duras is around as well, but he's a young man again, and we get their their father's names in both cases. So in Enterprise, Duras son of Taral, and in TNG, Duras son of Gerard. So Duras and Duras of House Duras. Presumably, Gerard is Duras's son, Duras, son of Taral's son, 
And that means you've got, actually get you only have three generations between Enterprise uh. and Next Gen. This is my postulation because the other example is we have Worf, son of Moog, in uh, our hero from Next Generation, a DS9, and eventually a Captain Worf show, please. Uh, <laughs> And you have Colonel Worf, who is uh, in Star Trek VI, is one of the lawyers uh, at Kirk's trial. Uh, he's actually defending Kirk. And it's Dorn, it's Michael Dorn in the same makeup, just with a different wig, uh, which I thought was amazing, personally. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, the same, it's the same era of um, Star Trek VI is happening, I think it's like three or four years into into the making of next gen at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Colonel Worf, is he Moog's father? Is that the is that what we're meant to believe? And then Moog is Worf's father and you just skip a generation for these names? So Colonel Worf could still be alive in next gen? Well, that's a question. I, I doubt it because the house of Moog it was Worf's father's house. It wasn't Worf's grandfather's right. house. So he's probably dead. Huh. But that's I mean, there's a question about why house names are what they are too, right? What? What? Yeah. Right, but in but in, for the purposes of your theory, is that these two facts taken together, it seems to prove that these Klingons are. Easily living over a hundred years. Oh, well over a hundred years, right? Because your enterprise is a hundred years before, right? Isn't right. it? The original series, yeah, or eighty, another eighty years before the original series, and uh, yeah, and then, and so, if it's three generations to get to from enterprise to next gen that's 160 years that's i mean that's that's just this is my postulation are these are the are we just skipping generations or is this a lot more generations and how do you get the name duras you know do you who gets to be like okay this is house duras but your name's charal and your name's gerard but you know your kid can be duras again is it there can only one, be one Duras alive, one person named for the house alive at any given time. Is that what's happening? I like it. Maybe that's it. And then beyond that, isn't there a, a core reference in Discovery? Didn't Wasn't there a reference to him in that? Was there? Did I miss I it? Thought so. I, thought, in, I mean, I think his name is just said, or the name Core is said in a, a Klingon context. And then I also noticed in... Enterprise, uh, I watched the episodes with Duras in preparation for this, and one of the things I noticed was that there's a judicial charter of Koloth. So is that the same Koloth, or is that Koloth's grandfather who it's, created that? Yeah, it's got to be his father or grandfather, but still, like, <laughs> that's, you know, like, there, there's something with Klingon names as well, right? They're, they're definitely alternating them inside the family. Mm, interesting. You know? I think I, I think that I think what happens in Klingons is, is that they they hit maturity and have kids and then are expected to die in battle in the next little while so that the kids, when they get old enough, can name their kids after their dead grandfather. Right? 
that's the plan. That's got to be the move because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Is this like, is Duras really living a hundred years before he dies so that finally a new Duras can be named Duras? (laughs) I mean, my takeaway on that is I'm saying is that it doesn't make sense under close observation. Sure. Like, I don't know that enough of this adds up to come up. No, I need it all in canon. Come on, Jesse. Everything <laughs> in canon must make sense. Okay, I'm looking at uh, Memory Alpha, and, and there is a House of Core in Discovery. There that, is a House of Core in Discovery. Yeah. Okay. So they will... anyway, they have no idea either, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of guesswork. Yeah. Anyway, shall we move on to your number one? Sure, absolutely. So my number one is... Why isn't AI more integrated when we get to the next generation period, given what we saw in the past? And the answer is because of Discovery Season 2 and some other stuff in the early show, they decided, someone decided, perhaps it's Section 31 that's actually actively sabotaging it, but someone decided in design they were not going to allow AI systems to be integrated. And when we talk about AI in this context, we're talking about the post-singularity, I have my own wants and desires AI, not just I can understand from context what you're actually asking the AI. Even though in Next Gen, we do have some failures from the computer uh, to even understand in context what you're asking Let's get there, shall we? <laughs> sure. Walk us through your, your steps. So in, in uh, Discovery, you have Control. So Control in Season 2 of Discovery uh, is a computer AI that the Federation is using to plan its strategic... Uh, moves. It's it's sort of you know Starfleet intelligence is using control to sort of game out solutions to their problems uh, post war with the Klingons, and it's it's clearly an AI. And then at the end of the season, it turns out it's trying to take over and uh, steal this uh, hundred thousand year old sphere data database. Uh, from Discovery and uh, use that to jump itself forward in evolution to take over the universe. And then in the future that uh, Michael Burnham's mother goes to, she finds out that in that future where uh, Control was successful, uh, it killed all the Organic uh, organic life. Which... Okay, sure. And then that becomes part of the plot of Discovery. There, of Picard is that's going to happen again, and they're going to summon the uh, AI Cthulhu from the Netherworld, and that's going to kill all organic life. Great. Okay. So, it, you know, it seems to be something that Star Trek writers currently are worried about. That aside, that was this, season two of Discovery. And then in, in the original series, you have the M5 computer, which is at least meant to show us that at the imaginings in the 60s that the computers would be so powerful that it would have no problem running a ship 
and answering uh, tactical problems and coming up with solutions um, and all those sorts of things. So inside these 10 to 15 years, uh, we're presented with very advanced computers and very advanced AI and all those sorts of things. And then by the time we get to next generation, all of a sudden, they're, they're still like, it's, a, it's 80 years later, and they decided against using M5. Of course, M5 turned out to be a failure yeah, at the great. time, but you assume, you know, okay, this M5 failed, but it doesn't mean that 80 years in the future, it won't be successful. Should it be? Or did they decide based on control and M5 that, okay, we're not, we're not going to pursue this, we're actively going to uh, dissuade our systems from being that integrated. We're we're only going to allow input and output from our uh, organic sides, and and let the computers can use AI to to make the decisions process faster. But they can't make the decisions. And I, I'm postulating that that is actually a design principle that has been integrated into all the systems going forward and that's supported by all the like all the the jatvage stuff and the you know let's be scared of ai and have secret societies specifically to suppress them and yeah like that but even even just inside starfleet you know it's possible that that's because of the romulans but the romulans are you know, that's what they're doing. Is it also what the Federation is doing? And it's just not telling us to camera? Maybe. But here's here's what I got. So in in a fistful of data's um Jordy and Data are experimenting with trying to get data to run the systems, uh, to integrate data's positronic neck with the main computer of the enterprise and get data to be able to run the systems and it goes horribly wrong and it's hilarious it's a hilarious uh yeah it's like horrible you know, like, by horribly wrong you mean it means they have to act out a western on the holodeck like yeah. it's it's <laughs> like yes that is bad and it's a scary situation for the people there but we also get to see Worf like you know blow smoke off the end of his finger gun and stuff so yeah, it was fantastic. But the, the other things that starts happening is like uh, his his poetry replaces all the uh, plays uh, for Doctor Crusher's plays that she'd written on the pads. All the pads were erased and replaced with uh, Data's poetry. Uh, cat food is coming out of all the replicators. Uh, it's, it's a bunch of sort of like he he expands into the computer, but. It you know it, the crux of the episode is the the fantastic uh, western uh, uh, hollow adventure that Worf and Alexander go on. But the my point the point that I'm making is, is that the computer is not able to interface with data, and I'm postulating that it is because of active interference from the computer's programmers and designers. Oh. Uh, whether or not that is told to people like Jordy uh, or it's completely top secret 
is not for us to know, but Jordy is trying to do it. So one assumes that he doesn't know that there's actually active dissuasion. So yeah, the, as, I mean, as chief I, engineer of the flagship of the fleet, like if it was even limited public knowledge, he would know. Like I think yeah. we can rule that out. Uh, another episode that sort of backs this is in Voyager. You've got the Doctor, and the Doctor is effectively an AI. He's, he's, he's very a, much so. Very much a, an AI. Um, but why can't he directly interface with the ship's computers? Why does he have to operate the tricorder? Why does he have to? And here's the, the episode spe- specifically is when he becomes a villain. Um, there's an episode, Tinker Taylor, Tinker Tenor, Dr. Spy. And uh, the doctor's program is um, being watched by this, the hierarchy, which is a, a sort of a, a hierarchy based alien society. They're on a ship. They're watching the doctor and they happen to watch his daydreams. So they have a completely skewed idea of what is, uh, what the doctor, what, what life on Voyager is really like. Anyway, they, the hierarchy decides that they want to rob Voyager, but this guy on the ship decides that he likes the doctor, but also he, he's worried that he hasn't been giving good intelligence up the chain because he's been watching the daydreams, yada, yada, yada. Point is, is that when they, when he's forcing the doctor to do stuff for them, they, the doctor has to operate the computers to do it. He doesn't, he can't just transmit directly through his programming into the computers. Why not? Why is he a separate siloed program? Why is he not, why is the computer not running everything? Why can't the two programs talk? Right. Do you know what I mean? And that has to be, like, it, it has to be intentional design. Uh, I mean, I know that in the writer's imagination, they're just like, okay, so he's a program. The computer's running this program. But if if the program is self-aware, there's no reason that it couldn't get at other programs. Right. So right? we see on, that. So based on M5, based on Nomad, based on Beta 3, all the evil computers that we had in the Kirk era that were saying at some point, there was sort of a general agreement to limit AI and to sort of limit the, to, to shackle it, to restrain it from having too much power because of these, to avoid the situations where the AI, oh, it went crazy and took over the ship and killed a bunch of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so there's a, there's an episode that breaks this theory, but it's because the computer itself develops an emergent AI. And, and I, and I think it it doesn't break this theory. What it, it's the exception that proves the rule is, um, yeah, the enterprise computer just becomes sentient, creates a life form and then dies, right? Like it doesn't, you got it. So it's emergence. And so what happens in that case is, yeah, the computer becomes emergent AI and it is able to access all the systems and starts to use the systems, the various systems it's using, the transporter and the replicators and the holodecks and the 
um, and the pro uh, propulsion and the sensors and the whole thing. So it's clearly, it is a thing that is possible, but only when the computer wants it to be possible. So the computer is able to overcome whatever is blocking it from doing that, develop self-awareness and self-will. Uh, and I guess that is what the the programmers were trying to prevent because they have such powerful computers there that if they let them do it, then they would just wander around the universe building their own life forms all the time. That's cool. I, I like that theory. Yeah. And, it, and it's such a continuous thread. Like it, like it, it holds out across all the series and stuff like control yeah. just validates it even more. Yeah. So, so they have to, they have to, it has to be an intentional limitation in the computers that they do not want. They do not want uh, AI as a part of their computer systems. And it's a bit of a downer end note. It is. Uh, it's just, it's fun. AI is one of the, the, the most fun we have with science fiction. And that theme actually shows up a lot, right? Ma it does. Mass absolutely. Effect deals really heavily with that. With a, yeah. like a major character, like Trisha Helfer plays an AI. And it's you know, a big thing is, do we let her have all control of the ship? Uh, Pre-Disney Star Wars spelled that right out exactly, that the reason they have so many droids is because they're afraid of centralized computers. Because they don't like AI, because that's a problem. So that's that's the katana fleet for Star Wars dorks. There's like it comes up a lot. AI is a big thing for us. We're we're really looking forward to it and also terrified of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and you know, we talk about machine learning and we talk about sort of. Uh, I mean, I'm a neural bit of a network cynic about machine learning. I mean, I think yeah. a long series of if statements does not constitute learning, but. Well, I mean, the idea is that if the machine can develop its own, choose, develop and choose its own if statements, yeah, well, that would be we'll get that's there. the learning. Yes, well, that that is the question, right? Mm. Will we get there, or should we decide actively that that's a bad idea, <laughs> right, and stop pursuing it? You know, I mean, that's especially with the the integrated network. I mean, that's 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 the question, right? You can do it in a sandbox if you've got a sandbox, but. Once you start doing it in an integrated network, then you risk the possibility, depending on how your AI is developed, of letting it out of the box. Like that's that's what control is telling us, right? You're not it's not you're not keeping it in a sandbox. You're if you let it out, it will get out. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we've done it, guys. Um, I, thank you for that, Dave. That was a fascinating deep dive on Star Trek that uh, I, I think to a level that few others have accomplished. And uh, I applaud you. I, I shudder in terror at your abilities. Um, uh, but yeah, thank you for, for coming on the show again. My pleasure. While we're giving out thanks, also want to thank Oliver Wickham, the guy behind our theme song. Uh, be sure to check him out on Spotify. He is a producer and an editor and has done all kinds of cool stuff. And also want to say thanks to you. Uh, we know our Star, a lot, our Star Trek episodes get a lot of downloads. It's, it's, it's a popular IP. Uh, so we give you the content that you're asking for. We know we've heard some feedback on Star Trek stuff. Other people wanted to debate or even come on to the show with. Uh, we love that. We love hearing from the community. 
community, uh, whether it's questions, comments, concerns, what have you, please feel free to let us know how we're doing, if you have anything to argue with or anything you want to add. Uh, Graham, if they want to reach out to us, how can they go about doing that? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. Please find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. The complete chronological Star Trek, not a project to be taken lightly. Um, I guess we said it was 20-something days of actual content, but just quickly, Dave, how long did this take you approximately, start to finish? I want to say I started it in November and then wrapped it up, what is it, June-ish? It was about seven to eight months. So if you got seven to eight months to kill... I can't even finish the sentence. But there is a lot of Star Trek out there to keep you busy uh, until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5, and we'll talk to you again next week.